millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Team Human is an ad-free community effort supported by real people like you. If you're not already a supporter, please consider joining the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll get access to our Discord channel, live salons, free admission to live events, and our Team Human team feed with special interviews, talks, and rare conversations. You'll also get free links to my weekly Medium columns, otherwise trapped behind the Medium paywall. Thanks for supporting this work. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We're in solidarity with all living things and dedicated to living in harmony with our non-living technological offspring. It's not too late to restore balance between the biological and the digital, the programmed and the soulful. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, the originator of technobiophilia, Sue Thomas. It could be anything. So your home could be, I think, one person lived inside the ear of somebody else. (laughs) That was their home. Sue is going to help us recognize and restore the nature in our technology. It's time to intervene on behalf of life itself. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I just found out that Program or Be Programmed is now celebrating its 10th anniversary. It's a book I wrote, Program or Be Programmed, 10 Commands for a Digital Age, Back when, uh, oh gosh, back when uh, I was worried that people were not learning enough about how these technologies work and were in danger of having these technologies work on them instead. And it really, it all came out of a, a John Culkin. He was a, an early media theorist. His, his observation that, as he said, we shape our technologies at the moment of their conception, but from that point forward, they shape us. 
And what he really meant, you know, was that human beings may have designed the telephone, but from then on, the telephone influenced how we communicated and conducted business and conceived of the world. You know, we invented the automobile, but then we rebuilt our cities around automated travel and our politics around fossil fuels. So the the axiom holds true for technologies from the pencil to the birth control pill, but computers, algorithms, and artificial intelligences, they add another little twist, because after we launch them, they not only shape us, but they also begin to shape themselves. We may give them an initial goal and then give them all the data they need to figure out how to accomplish it. And then from that point forward, we human beings no longer fully understand how an AI may be processing information or modifying its tactics. The machine isn't conscious enough to even tell us. It's just trying everything and hanging on to whatever works. So researchers, they've found, for example, that the algorithms running social media platforms tend to show people pictures of their ex-lovers having fun. And it's not that users want to see such images, but through trial and error, the algorithms have discovered that showing us pictures of our exes having fun increases our engagement. We're drawn to click on those pictures because we want to see what our exes are up to, and then we're more likely to do it if we're jealous that they found a new partner. So the algorithms don't know why this works. They don't care. They're only trying to maximize whatever metric we've instructed them to pursue. And that's why the original commands we give our computers are so important. Whatever values we embed, such as efficiency, growth, security, or compliance, they become the values they achieve. And they'll do so by whatever means happen to work. Machine intelligences will be using techniques that no one, not even they, understand, and they'll be honing them to generate better results and then use those results to iterate further. You know, to a hammer, everything is a nail, and to a computer, everything is a computational challenge. That's why we must not accept any technology as the default solutions for our problems. Because when we do, we end up trying to optimize ourselves for machines instead of optimizing the machines for us. Whenever people or institutions fail, we assume they're simply lacking the appropriate algorithms or upgrades. So by starting with the assumption that our problems are fixable through technology, we end up emphasizing very particular strategies. We improve the metrics that a given technology can improve, but then we often ignore or leave behind the sorts of problems that technology can't address. We move out of balance because our money and effort, they only go toward the things we can solve and the people who can pay for those solutions. That's why to this day, we've got a greater part of humanity working on making our social media feeds more persuasive than we have making clear clean water more accessible. We build our world around what our technologies can do. So as I tried to demonstrate back with Programmer Be Programmed, which is now 
10, almost 11 years old, most technologies, they just start out as tools. At first, they exist to serve our needs, and they don't directly contradict our worldview or our way of life. If anything, we use them to express our own existing values. We built airplanes so we could experience flight and travel great distances. We develop radio to extend our voices across space. The primary impact on our world is for these technologies to execute their original purpose. But as technologies become more a part of our world, we begin making more accommodations to their functioning. This is what Neil Postman was trying to write about in Technopoly. We learn to cross the street carefully so as not to be hit by automobiles or... We clear-cut a forest to make way for electric cables, or we take a room that used to be dedicated to family and conversation, the living room, and we dedicate it to the television. The technology forces negotiations and compromises, and without human intervention, technology just becomes an accepted premise of our value system, the starting point from which everything else has to be inferred. In a world of text, illiteracy is the same as stupidity, and the written law may as well be the word of God. In a world defined by computers, speed and efficiency become the primary values. Refusing a technological upgrade may as well be a rejection of the social norm or a desire to remain sick, weak, and unrepentantly human. To most of the developers and investors of Silicon Valley, humans are not to be emulated or celebrated, certainly not with technology, but transcended or at the very least re-engineered. The technologies, they're so dominated by the values of the digital revolution or the, the capitalist digital revolution that they see anything or anyone with different priorities as an impediment. This is a distinctly anti-human position, and it's the driving development philosophy of the most capitalized companies on the planet right now. Human beings are not the problem. We are the solution. Only by taking command of our technologies can we promote a future in which we will thrive together with each other and with our little computer friends. You may notice I'm trying to say more nice things than usual about technology and its potentials, because our guest today, Sue Thomas, like me, is one of the people who first saw digital technology as a reflection or extension of nature itself. She wrote a book about 10 years ago also called Technobiophilia, in which she argued that we could come to a much healthier relationship with our technologies if we could bring ourselves to recognize them as expressions of nature. There is a pro-technology perspective that is also pro-human, pro-nature, pro-sustainable, even pro-soul. And in a moment like this, it is a gift to turn to someone who's been able to maintain this sensibility all along. I'm delighted to share this conversation with my friend, Sue Thomas. So hi, Sue. It's hi. <laughs> been a while. Last yes. time I saw you was in uh, London, I guess, at one of Luke Robert Mason's 
events. That's right. Gosh, it's been a strange few years. But it has. I wanted to speak to you for so long. I mean, you you handed me the book, which is uh, uh, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's a it's a life changing experience, particularly for those of us who were introduced to these technologies before they existed, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> to watch them happen in the world, to watch them grow like yeah. ivy on the side of a building. <laughs> we did. <laughs> uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a whole wonderful set of, of flashbacks. Just so people know, this is a book called Technobiophilia, Nature and Cyberspace. And this is from almost 10 years ago, isn't it? Well, it came out in 2013, but mm. it took me eight years to write it. So <laughs> it, it had been stewing a long time. <laughs> oh, so you're making a sustainable living as an author, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know your actual story, though. How did you come to this? Were you just a person like me who looked at tech and what was happening to the world and started thinking and writing about it? Or are you like an official? trained person I'm not sure I'm trained <laughs> I guess that the, the brief story is I went to university as a mature student with two kids to support and so on and did English and history but it was the computer studies that the option that really grabbed me so I mm. fell in love with computers round about the end of the 80s mm. before we knew about the internet and I wrote a novel called Correspondence which was about what would what would life be like if you could turn into a machine mm. and that did quite well and was shortlisted for the Arthur C Clarke and so on mm. but that was 92 and then about 2 years later I really got onto the internet Internet, and that changed my life, really. So I was in the very early days, if you remember Lambda Moo, all the yes. moos and muds. I spent a lot of time doing that and um, also set up an international community for writers working online. So that was all kind of mid 90s. So, yeah, early to it. Right. Um, and a university lecturer at the time, but ended up getting a big grant from the wonderful English Arts Council to set up this online community. So that's where it started. Oh. Oh, that's terrific. And you were, were you raising kids as a single mother? Yeah. Wow. So you were supporting them while you were doing this and going to school. Oh, yeah. At one point, I had eight different jobs, mostly to do with teaching creative writing in all kinds of obscure places. Yeah. But then I eventually did go back to the university where I just graduated and started teaching creative writing. Mm. But when we got the grant from the Arts Council, then I could really move ahead to develop this community. So that ran for 10 years in the end. So it was through that very wired life in the late 90s for me that ended up with the, the next book that led into technobiophilia. But the next book was called Hello World Travels in Virtuality. Mm. And it was about, it was really a memoir about my life in the wired world right. very early though. Before Facebook. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I remember, but there was a switch for me. I mean, I played with computers in the, you know, mid to late 70s and very early 80s in, in high school and, and college. But it was a different kind of computer. You know, it was a terminal. We were using BASIC and it was, I liked it, but it was weird little pocket protector geek people, you know, who liked 
you know, Fortran and, you know, yeah. it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> but then there was this other moment when I came back to computers in the early 90s when it was my psychedelic friends and my rave friends, these crazy people. And, and, and I went out, I mean, crazy, wonderful people and went out to San Francisco and saw that they were using iterative equations to generate fractals on their screen. Right. And for me, fractals was my first moment of what you would call technobiophilia, where I looked and said, oh my gosh, it's nature in there, you know, because they look <laughs> like leaves and ferns yeah. and coral reefs. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, is this is this nature? Is this just a, something that looks like nature? Have we found the the what Terence McKenna would call the greeny engines of creation in these equations <laughs> and computers? So did you have a, a similar sort of shift, a, a similar moment of uh, where, where you felt like you were looking into, into nature somehow? Well, yeah, because when I got involved in Lambda Mu, which for those who don't remember the Muds and Moos, it's a, a text-based virtual world. Um, so this was way before we could really use sound or images or anything like that. So it was like logging into a chat room. Except it was also like moving into the holodeck. It was still yes. a more, for the, the experience of these text worlds was more visceral than the best virtual reality anyone has ever yet made yeah just so you know absolutely. it was absolutely yeah it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> and particularly for writers because writers could write anything whatever they, they right. could write themselves a house or write themselves a, a, a look a style or a gender we had I think we had 10 different genders to choose from. <laughs> but what fascinated me there was the way that people described their places. Mm. So many people wanted, you know, because you could build a home, as I'm sure right. you remember. So it could be anything. So your home could be, I think, one person lived inside the ear of somebody else. <laughs> that mm. was their home. Um, but a lot of people <laughs> chose to build themselves in words log cabins and there were lots of these kind of nature-based environment and of course you could create mountains as well you know right. so you could create natural things but in terms of home and sense of belonging the place was full of log cabins with roaring fires and um you know the wild world outside staying yeah. safe inside and that kind of thing so it was the the idea of place and my own sense as well of just being on the internet, where am I? You know, now I'm talking to you. We're on the internet together, um, physically th thousands of miles apart. And I got really obsessed with, but where are we then? Where mm. is this place? Yeah, that's great. I remember I was, uh, I, this is like my claim to fame. I was the guy who went on the Larry King show in the US. He's this oh. big, to tell, <laughs> at, to, to explain what is cyberspace. And he was like, so, Doug ah. Rushkoff, what is cyberspace? And I was like, Larry, <laughs> you're in cyberspace right now. Yeah. <laughs> but there, it, is that, it is that sense of place. I remember, um, who was it? Brenda Laurel wrote this book, Computers as Theater. That was yeah. around that same time. And, and that for yeah. me was so grounding to think of it. Oh, it's like a play and we're, it's a stage and we're building this stage set together with the computer screen as this proscenium, you know, it helped, but yeah, yeah. that sense of place. Cause it did feel, and, and I went there, I would it'd be at night beyond my, and I was there with other people. Yeah. It was like a shared dream space. 
Yes. It was so hard to describe to people the feeling. I just wanted to be there all the time. I mean, <sighs> I did yeah. go through a rather manic phase when I used to just leave Lambda Moo logged on in my laptop and sleep next to it <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it was just kind of scrolling away. <laughs> I went into one of them, I remember, was, and someone, they stole my head. Which one was that? <laughs> Do you know this one? You go in and then they ask to borrow your head. No. Um, and But they're scammers. That. And you come in and they take your head and you're a headless person and you basically got to restart your whole, create a oh, whole new. No. It was terrible. And then, and there were some awful things. I remember um, Julian Dibble wrote this famous piece yeah. early on called I've been A Rape in Cyberspace. About that. Yeah, uh, I've been thinking about that lately quite a lot with, with what we're hearing about, you know, what happens in the new metaverse. Mm. People talking about being assaulted, etc. And of course, it goes right back to a rape in cyberspace. What right, year which was, was a, that? I've forgotten. Oh, gosh, 93, 94. It was really... Yeah, I mean, and the story was basically, I mean, what is it to get raped in a... to have your character raped in a text-based world? Uh yeah, it was a 1993, a rape in cyberspace or how an evil clown, a Haitian trickster spirit, two wizards and a cast of dozens turned a database into a society Yeah, and the village voice. But it was the first time that we looked and went, oh, right. You know, there's pain, pain and damage that can yeah. happen in these spaces. And, and it was done by, if you remember, the fact that we all learned a little bit of code in order to be able to move around and do our descriptions and so on. And these people just added some extra code of their own, which meant they could make you do things that you, that you didn't want to do. Right. And it was all done in code. So you were, you know, in the power of somebody who was changing your code. Very interesting. Yeah, there was the, I mean, people can do that. You you could experience that now in somewhere like Second Life. I mean, you still yeah. have to submit, but they, they're these little balls people make and the balls have code in them. And if you agree, you know, you, to, you click on the ball and, you know, you can have sex with them or dance with them or they'll make your body, you know, move in strange uh -huh. ways. But at least they've set it up so you have to um, consent to... <laughs> Oh, well, that's a step To be taken forward. over. <laughs> <laughs> it's not informed consent. It's just a ball. And it could be anything at all, but at least you consent to be taken over. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So your, yeah, your experience, it was very, um, that sense of, of, of a, of a spatial place, you know, this place that we, that we inhabit together became, uh, kind of your, your portal to this sensibility but then yeah. and for as you know you know most people experienced even by the late 90s most people started to experience these um, internet spaces as just an onslaught of you know data smog and uh, uh you know getting uh whatever they used to call it when you'd get you know too much data coming in you don't have enough filters and data overload um yeah and you started to really write about almost what what you know what amber case would call calm technology now but the yeah. way that nature um, that 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 this kind of technobiophiliac approach to technology makes it feel more organic and less less jagged, right? That's right. Uh, I mean, for me, by the time I'd written Hello World, which came out two thousand four, I was I was feeling myself completely in both places at the same time, integrated. Mm. You know, so wherever I was in the physical world, I was all, also somewhere in the wired world, and I was really conscious of this sense of place where I was living at the time was in a, an old an English village that at one time had been lived in by the Romans. 
So mm-hmm. the, the the street that went past my house was originally a Roman road. So it was 2,000 years old. And I'm always very aware of the Romans <laughs> and all the other people who'd ever walked up and down that street. We're all in layers, really. We're living in layers. And so I happened to physically be there at the time. Well, if you look at quantum physics, you could say we were all there at the same time. Mm. Um but so I was very conscious of that. So being in, in cyberspace for me was just one more place, one more level, if you like. But when I'd finished that book, I thought, well, am I crazy or do other people think the same as me? And that's mm. where I started the next book, which was about metaphors of cyberspace at that time, nature metaphors. And I did a lot of research. I came over to California and spoke to lots of the, the old guys from the old days, <laughs> um, people like Doug Engelbart and mm. Kevin Kelly, Howard Rheingold Course, um, lots of different people, because I wanted them to tell me if they'd been thinking in those terms. And for the most part, they had not. And mm. for the most part, they were engineers who were looking at the technical problems, but not really at, at what I what I was trying to get at. So it took me several years and lots of interviews to realise that I was actually on the wrong track. And that, that's when I switched to it, looking at environmental psychology. And that's where I found the answers. Well, and environmental psychology is what? Well, it's if you like, the science of looking at how humans behave in the environment, or in my particular case, I was looking at the natural world. And there was lots and lots of research done in mostly around the 80s, where they were trying to evaluate and assess in a scientific way what what effects nature has on people. So one of the, the first and kind of earliest and most discussed really experiments was in a hospital where they had patients who'd had gallbladder operations and they put half of the patients in a ward that had a window but all you could see was a brick wall and the other half they put them in a ward where you could see one I think it was a fairly scratty tree but it was a tree that (laughs) they could see from their beds and then they measured their recovery And they found very clear results that the people with the tree needed less pain relief. They were usually allowed to be discharged earlier, et cetera, et cetera. They they were very, they had a much faster recovery than the patients with who only had a brick wall. Well, then why do hospitals still have brick walls out all the windows? But that that one experiment triggered loads of others in schools, prisons, all kinds of right. places, and the results just kept being repeated. Um, so that's what environmental psychologists were looking at right. at the time. Do they ever count like the social environment? Does that count? As, or it's almost more specifically whether there's nature or not, it's more like physical environment. Well, yes, but interestingly, they were looking at physical environment. But, of course, what I was looking for was, well, why have you got a waterfall on your screensaver? Why did you choose that? Mm. Waterfalls are nothing to do with computers. Why did you choose that? So that's what I was looking for. And I realized eventually that many of these experiments, they were not people physically touching nature, as I'd assumed they would be. But actually, you know, the 
the ward experiment was windows. Quite often they would show people videos of nature or paintings of nature. And I asked an environmental psychologist why they didn't just take people out into nature. And they said, well, it's more difficult to control the experiment. Uh. <laughs> so I thought... I thought, hang on a minute, you know, if if these people are looking at films and screens and paintings and even calendars and being affected by it, then that's my answer as to why you have a waterfall on your screen, right. on, on your as your screensaver, because that's technology as well. But of course, at that time, talking for me, the early 2000s, and certainly in the 1980s, there was a massive divide between the greener people, environmental psychologist culture, and the geeky culture that I was coming from. Right. And they'd certainly never talked to each other. I know. I know that that divide keeps happening. I remember in... Uh there's a book called Multimedia by uh, Ken Jordan. It's a bunch of essays. And they had uh, William Gibson did the uh, introduction for it. And he was saying, there's like the tech boys and the art boys. And, yeah. they, they, and he goes, I'm an art boy, but I write about tech. But it was like so hard to cross over. And that was why I thought I, I was so interested in the psychedelic culture, because they did kind of cross over. You know, people are taking mushrooms. So at least they're taking nature into themselves if they've got yes. technology outside <laughs> themselves and they start doing uh uh almost a a a projection of nature into technology itself. So even they don't need the screensaver to be a waterfall to see, oh, look at the self-similarity in these programmatic architectures. You know, they're they're starting to see the computer itself as nature. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, as the years have gone by since I wrote Technobiophilia, and mm. certainly with, with the COVID lockdowns, Ugh. that understanding has just rushed ahead now. And I think that, you know, we don't hear so much now about a call for a digital detox. People have experienced for themselves how you can connect with each other and with nature through a screen. Right. And there are, I mean, that's what you start to realize that it's less about, although I do think it's good for people to have a, a tech Shabbat, you know, Sabbath occasionally, uh, you walk in the woods, look in people's eyes. Um, it has a lot more to do with how are you using the technology when you're on it. You know, you can have, you could do a series of emails and feel exhausted, or you could do a series of emails and feel exhilarated. So, you know, yeah. what's the difference between that? I mean, I guess you've learned, do you have a, an approach to tech that helps you? I mean, I feel enlivened the way we're interacting now. And it's not that this Riverside interface is so good. This is, you know, it's grainy and whatever, but I feel like because we I guess because we're experienced in this realm, we know how to let the the tech parts kind of fall away and and focus on the on the human interaction part of it. That's right. That that, that reminds me of a story from the early days when we were teaching people to use the internet, people who'd never been on the internet before, or people to go onto Lambda Moo and chat with others. And I was fascinated by the fact there was a percentage of those people who had no idea that there was another person at the other end of that chat. So if I was one of those people, I mean, I know I can see you, whereas at the time you couldn't see each other. It was mm. only, you know, type text. But yeah. people would just suddenly turn the computer off and walk away. And I'd be saying, what? what? There's somebody there. You've just t 
you wouldn't, if somebody was in a room with you, you wouldn't just turn around in the middle of a conversation and walk out of the room. So some people just did not get it and they probably still don't but most people they do make that connection but yeah in terms of tips as it happens I wrote a follow-up to technobiophilia with tips mm. <laughs> so that's called nature and well-being in the digital age and that's mm. a kind of simplified version explaining the thinking but then with some practical things to do and I, I guess one of my main tips has always been to get rid of that guilt. There's so much guilt from people who love their phones, but they constantly feel guilty about loving their phones. And they're always wondering whether they should turn them off or leave them behind or go outdoors without their phone as if it was a more pure behavior. Mm. But of course, if you give up your phone in that regard, you're giving up a lot of other things as well. Not least the chance of taking photographs or using a map to find out where you are. So the kind of top lesson really I think is just chill out and see your phone as a kind of integrated pathway between you and nature in lots of different ways. Right. I mean, the the trick is that so much of the stuff on our phone is like the rape in cyberspace is subjecting us to programmatic activity that we're not giving consent for, Yeah. you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and that gets worse all the time. Yeah, which is hard. So, I mean, I guess partly it's a matter of literacy or media literacy, understanding what, oh, you know, if you're going to leave your Facebook app on, then it's got algorithms that are trying to do things and trying to influence you all the time. If you're using a compass, you know, to get around the woods, it's not doing that thing That's to you right. necessarily. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's up to each each person to balance their own kind of nature tech balance in whatever way that suits them best. Right. But it does require some, we have to bring our autonomy and agency to that table. You don't have to yes. accept everything at its default settings. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's literacy and it's about learning how to use your phone. And of course, lots of people don't they don't have to they're so easy to use now you know the barrier is so low that you're not forced to really learn and understand how your phone works and what happens when people hack into it so we're vulnerable yeah yeah I mean it's funny I remember in the in the early days as we're calling them when people had their their early mac computers and the simple stuff that they would try to personify their their devices, you know, what we called anthropomorphism. They put like rabbit ears on their computer and have a name for it and put stickers. Oh, this is, or their laptop. This is Bertha. I take her everywhere. And I felt like around 2000 or 2010, maybe, it kind of, the, the that dynamic reversed. And people started to become, rather than make their computers more human, they started to make themselves more digital. Yeah. You know, they yeah, started talking about their own processing speed and their efficiency <laughs> and, you know, and it's, or, you know, if you're an Uber driver and you're just following all these directions, you become part of, part of the code. And that sort of the, that was that tipping point that kind of bothered me when I felt like, uh oh, they're winning. Yeah. And, you know, that's also, that makes it easier as well to say, um, I'm addicted to my phone I'm helpless you know I'm just addicted to it I can't do anything about this um, that sense of helplessness is very worrying but do you remember 
another thing that was around that that earlier time that's called skewermorphism. Have you come across mm, that? Yes. Very interesting of making modern technical things look old. And I've never been a Mac user. I don't really get on with Mac at all. Mm. But I remember they, do you remember they, their kind of calendar used to look like an old fashioned calendar with kind of slightly yellowing and um, it looked like yeah. an old paper book. That's mm-hmm. skewermorphism that Apple were trying to build in. And I believe they did it at a time when there were a lot of older people coming into buying Macs. And, and in order to make them comfortable, Apple went through a phase of trying to make everything look old and familiar and physical. Very physical. Yeah. Yeah. And iconic. Yeah. But it was interesting. I mean, to me, that was always, and for a while, I was I was a PC person for this very reason. And I love my auto exec bat file and everything, you know, the, the, to be able to configure my computer with text. And I felt at the time that, that PCs were like Judaism and Macs were like Catholicism or Christianity. It's like, okay, we've, Judaism, we've got the rules. These are the behaviors. If you follow these rules and follow these laws, it's all written down. You'll be an ethical good person. Just do this shit and you'll be fine. And then it's like, and believe God is an abstract thing. You're never going to see it. It's you're in a new round. It's not like here. It's like God. And then Christians came in and said, all right, people can't relate to that. So let's give them a face, a person, like an object. It was sort of like, like Jesus to me felt like kind of like the Mac, like here's a desktop, here's a metaphor, here's a story that you can relate to as a person. And it was like, yeah, and it was valuable. But on the other hand, it kind of prevented people from engaging with the technology of spirituality directly. You know, now that they've got a, a, a static metaphor written up by, you know, some priest somewhere. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm an atheist, so I, I right. stand oh, in so the middle. I'm not insulted but by any of this. Yeah. I'm not insulted at all. But but it does it does chime with how I felt because I started off on on a, a DOS machine, and that was what what changed my life was this course at university where they taught us some basic programming, mm. and this was the thing for me was if you write the code and you write it correctly with no mistakes, then it will work. And you can do it tomorrow and it'll work again and it'll work again. And my first thought was, well, wouldn't this be great if I could apply this to my relationships, which are always a disaster? If I could just write the code for a relationship and everything would be fine. So <laughs> that's what that's what I wrote about when I first started writing was, you know, relationships that were written in code. <laughs> but then, so I was used to finding out how things worked and how you made things happen in, in a DOS machine. And then Mac comes along and at the university at one point, we were all forced to have a Mac. And I just thought, well, this is like a kind of sealed box. I don't mm. understand any of it. I can't think like the Mac. You know, it's not letting me in. And I, I really hated it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm definitely a PC person. <laughs> well, it was interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole arc of technology has been uh, uh, to make it more usable, but less programmable, right? So the distance between the programmer and the user gets greater and greater. As And, and I get it, it was easier. My parents were able to use a Mac, you know, that they, they wouldn't have been able to approach a, a DOS-based 
PC. Well, I guess they would have. They just would have needed a day, you know, rather than ten minutes to yeah. <laughs> to figure out how to how to how to use it. But part of what you loved about the uh, programmability was that you get predictable outcomes. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. Like, but that that's also in some ways, you know, when I look at the the kind of the tech bro mindset that I've been writing about lately, that's the great danger too, is that these dudes want reality to be predictable. They're afraid of women and nature and the unpredictable creative capacity. And they've taken the internet, which was so much about the wild possibilities of the collective creative capacity of humanity working together and said, oh, no, no, you know, now we're going to use these things. We're going to write algorithms that make people more predictable so we can bet on our Netflix stock and give them the movies they yeah. want. And, and it, 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 it's, a, it's a liability too. It is because also what they do is then they write systems which push us into – saying yes or no, there's no maybe, you know, yes, I want this, no, I don't want that. The systems all push us to behave like digital machines, you know, zeros and ones, and there's no wriggle, wiggle room there. And so they're right. happy because they're getting the data that they want, but we're frustrated and alienated. And I think, I mean, Netflix is a good example because I find their interface absolutely infuriating infuriatingly vague and difficult for me to manage. There are lots of things I'd like to be able to do, like put things in folders or, you know, lots and lots of things that it won't let me do because all it cares about is whether I watch something or don't watch it or thumbs up or thumbs down. And that is very frustrating. And I don't understand why they don't see that if they give us more variables, we'll, we'll love it more. <laughs> I would think so. I think that they're trying to hide the fact that maybe there's not that much content there, that if they just <laughs> gave us an index of the whole friggin' thing, yeah, we'd see, oh, yeah. there's 30 films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> could well be <laughs> i know it's so hard i i'm finally trying to get my my website to be an archive that just lists all the articles i've written in date with dates and searchable and it's right. like everybody's like oh no you don't want that go to wordpress go to this do this no i want xml files or html files in folders and a list on one page well why would you do that <laughs> because it's easy and it will stay forever you know how many times i've had to try to port my my work from one system into another and it all goes yeah. away and i've got to it never works just uh, and it's not it's not to say i want I'm old and want things old. This is not an okay boomer moment. It's really a moment about removing all of the the kind of the veils of inaccessibility around things so we can get our hands. I mean, the digits, <laughs> these are the digits, right? Yeah. Back on <laughs> the stuff, you know, it's, it's yeah. the same as in, in, in nature, you know, we, you look at like industrial agriculture, you know, and it's like, yeah, I want to get rid of some of those tractors and machines and things and get people back into the soil, which is a living matrix and not just destroying it all the time, you know. So it's not against farming. It's like, I'm not against technology. It's like I'm pro-technology, but in a more fundamental way. It's funny, even when you were talking, I was thinking about when you were saying how, how you could never relate to the Mac, I felt that way about the web, you know, we oh, had really? our internet. It was a beautiful internet. I knew how to tunnel around in it. Then the web came and the web felt so flat 
you know, <laughs> compared to, it's like TV. Right. Well, I didn't have that early experience that you had. So I, I guess, I mean, Lambda Moo, because it runs on Telnet, mm-hmm. that, that was, you know, I yes. could do that and so on. But um, the web, well, there was hardly anything there in those early right. days. It, but I didn't, I didn't really grok it, as we say. Uh, took me two or three years to really get a sense of how to move around the web, how to navigate. I remember discovering bookmarks because before that, I just got little post-its all stuck all around my computer with URLs on because I mm. didn't know you could bookmark them. <laughs> so again, you know, navigating, it, it's like terrain. It's like getting from one place to another and, and knowing where to you know, put your footsteps and so on. So it always felt to me like that that physical navigational um, skill that you had to develop. And if you didn't, you were, you could be completely disorientated. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and luckily before the web, there were just, it was all casting out, you know, it was much more like casting spells for, in, in magic. You know, you would, a, a gopher search or an FTP search, you'd kind of yeah. throw out and then it something would come back and you know, you'd find a portal <laughs> into a new realm of data or people or an IRC chat. And it was like, Oh, I found the others. You know, it was this, this wild <laughs> feeling, but yeah. again, very natural. And you know, the, I guess the thing that I've been, I've been wondering about is, you know, you start with biophilia, which is like, that's E.O. Wilson. Um, he didn't actually invent the word. word. There was a psychologist before him whose name escapes me who invented the word, but E.O. Wilson made it famous, yeah. And it was sort of the attraction to nature, uh, uh, yes. uh, the innate attraction to nature, which yes. we all have. We go in the woods and, ah, what is that, right? So he got that. Then you added technobiophilia, which is seeing the nature in the attraction to technology as nature. Yeah, ex- well, experiencing nature through technology is the way that right. I describe it. And interestingly, with the innate side of it, I think there was, there's always some dispute. E.O. Wilson said that it was innate, it was in our genes that we would mm. be attracted to nature. Some people think that's not true. So you can take the innate in or out, really. But certainly, as you say, that thing of, you know, if somebody says to me, oh, I need to go out and be in nature for a while, I know what they mean intuitively. Yeah. We, we know what they're talking about, but yeah. we've never really had words to describe that or, or to define it until he came along with biophilia. And then mm. with my research, I started, it was clear clear that what the environmental psychologists were finding, the positive impact of biophilia, other people were starting to find the same thing in in nature seen through a screen or experienced in a video game or whatever. And so that's why I thought there has to be a new word for this. So I made right. up technobiophilia, which is a bit clunky. But but there's one but, interesting but no, thing. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention, which is yeah. that E.O. Wilson thought that possibly biophilia could go dormant for periods in society. There would mm. be a, a dormant period where people were not so engaged with nature. And he believed that it could be triggered by something back into life. And I do believe that with cyberspace and, and TV and our encounters with nature through technology, it has triggered biophilia to kind of come back in a fresh way. So I, I very much like that idea of it being, of, of if you like, technology triggering a new phase of biophilia. It's interesting, though, because um, 
you know, when I had my daughter and I'm living in the city, I thought, you know, because the world is getting so digital, I'm going to move out to the country so that there's some, so at least if she's on the screen all the time in school or wherever, at least she'll go outside and see trees and be in nature. And it was a good impulse, especially because it's it's a little slower and the kids know each other. They're living in the same neighborhood. So there's less need to connect to your, you know, private school or the kids that you, you, the kids in the city, they go on the subway to their schools, even public schools, you, they move all around. So they're not in a neighborhood with friends. But the longer I've been here in a town that's essentially the suburbs, the more I've started to experience the city as nature and this as fake. You know, the, <laughs> the suburbs oh. is 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 a pl- almost a planned community in the 20s and 30s by various real estate people to and the city feels even though it's on a grid pattern it feels like the city just happened the city is this weird or it's like human beings in a termite mound do you know what i mean that the, yeah, the, the city yeah. i know i was raised there but to me the subway is nature <laughs> am i allowed to say that or is that is You're that allowed. awful <laughs> do you know what i mean though it's if yeah, it's, or yeah. it's my if i'm indigenous to anything it's that right yes I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, but they are planned they are planned places. But but I I was wondering because you know, technobiophilia, now that we're, you know, 20 years into the the technobiophilia really or 30 depending on where you where you start it. Uh, it feels like there's now there's like a I guess I wanted to ask you if there's a almost a a socio technobiophilia. In other words, now that we are living so much socially on technologies, are we starting to see kind of almost the, the recapitulation or the, 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 it's funny, he uses the word meta. Is there a, a meta nature that we're experiencing in the new kind of the digital social reality? Do we start to find a, 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 a something real in that you know it's so easy to say oh the socializing is terrible and i even wrote team human saying oh you make no eye contact you can't see if someone's pupils are getting bigger you can't establish rapport but i'm establishing rapport with you here in this in a in a socio-techno biophiliac way do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah well a quick point about the eyes i've people say this so often is that you can't get proper eye contact but i think that's because you know we're talking well i'm talking to you through a tiny dot at the top of my laptop i'm looking at you on the screen but i but I should be looking up at the tiny dot because mm. that's, you know, so we're not actually making eye contact. I'm I'm not looking directly at you at this minute. Yeah, to, to kind of expand that, I live very close to the beach um, and it really amuses me that when we all know we're going to have a great sunset, everybody dashes down to the beach to take a photo of the sunset on the beach and then they all put it on Facebook and uh, people give lots of likes. And my friends say to me, oh, we love your photos. We can't get to the beach. Please post more photos of the beach. And I'm thinking, but this is crazy because, you know, all these photos are the same. (laughs) We're all taking photos of the sunset, but everybody loves those pictures and, and almost treats them as if they are real, particularly if they can't get to the real beach. And 
Another example would be, have you heard about what they're doing with virtual reality and cruise ships? This has been going on for a few years now. So I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise, but they have inner cabins. So if you have more money, you can get a cabin where you can see the sea or right. have a balcony. But if you can't afford much, you end up on an inside cabin that has no windows, no porthole. So several cruise lines have now put a virtual reality balcony in those inner cabins. And I haven't seen one personally. I've only seen pictures of them, but they just look amazing. You get the sense of there's a balcony, except it's not real. It's not three dimensional. And then there's um, net curtains gently waving with the sea breeze. And maybe you'll be able to hear the sound of the sea as well, or maybe not. But certainly the, the virtual reality balcony is now very popular. And do they adjust it to the pitch of the ship so that you can look at the horizon and if the boat is tipping? I wonder. They should. Yeah, you know, I you don't get less know. seasick. But, but the, the, the only time I went on a cruise, I became fascinated by the fact that I was lucky in that I did have a balcony. But also on the screen in front of me, a t- big TV screen, they would show a live stream from the front of the ship. So Ah. I could sit on the bed and look at the TV and watch the live stream of the ship, or I could turn around and look out the window and see the actual sea. We could just do that at home. You don't have to go on the boat at all. (laughs) And then have the DoorDash people bring the uh, uh, cruise food to the to your apartment door, and you're done. You know that's the that's the yeah. That's our literacy. We're used to that now. Yeah. The undertow to all this is that while we're busy experiencing aspects of nature through technology, many of the technologies we're using are destroying nature at the very same time, right? Yes. Yeah. So we're building some, you know, metropolis. uh, uh, I mean, yes, the Matrix is good. Yes, the Matrix recreates nature, but... um, I, I do get concerned by our, our disconnection. I remember um, Timothy Leary when he read um, Media Lab for the first time the, about Nicholas Negroponte's lab at, at um, MIT, written by Stuart Brand, who was, you know, the, the hippie technology business, whatever you want to call him. You know, he's always pushed through with technology, with more tech, you know, genomics, everything, uh, nuclear, do whatever we need. We are, we are as gods. When Timothy read that, he was he was saying, "Oh, these guys they want to recreate the womb, you know. They want to yeah. they want you know they want the 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 they're still upset that their mothers weren't able to anticipate their every need, and now they want to recreate a womb around themselves that brings them everything they want, you know, robot women and everything in in the total predictable way. So they yes they recreate nature, but nature as a tamed." Uh, the tamed version of nature that we want rather than what's going on out there and at the expense of what's out there as our, you know, we, we, we burn the world to, to pray to Bitcoin. You know, we are, you know, uh, accelerating the pace at which nature runs out. Yeah. Well, we're in a mess. Um, I, I think it was, uh, when I wrote hello world, I think I said in, in the beginning, something that, to the effect that now that we are wired, how can anyone unwire us? Because mm. I had the idea that because we'd learned about global community through being together online, that even if the internet were turned off tomorrow, we still had that 
connectivity, human connectivity. That's what I believed in 2004. Mm. But the global pandemic has certainly shown us that that's not what we do. We don't all come together and connect in a global community. So it's not looking good. I know. Well, you know, I, I, I was raised in the television era and television was a very global medium. And McLuhan used to talk about, you know, the television in the global village, how TV and the simultaneity of satellite television, we all experience the moon landing or the falling of the Berlin Wall or the Olympics together. And that digital would be different. And it is. Digital has ended up, is very discreet. It doesn't create that hands across the world falling of the Berlin Wall. It creates the Donald Trump building of the Berlin Wall and the Brexit of England. It's everything is like you say, one or zero, yes or no, you're or England, America or Mexico. And uh, that's not nature. That's, <laughs> that's something else. You know, so what do you see as the, as the answer to that? You know, for me, the answer for a while has been, I've been telling people, and maybe it's silly, just get offline, meet your neighbors, get very local, because at least the local reality is natural. Yeah. And, and if we're all local, you know, we can still network and coordinate, but not try to do things at this global scale. You know, local, different local solutions, a myriad of possibilities are all. But uh, there's, there's kind of a rejection of technology implicit in a lot of my work. And uh, are you still able to kind of integrate it to see that, that we, we bring this through, that we can keep making silicon wafers and, uh, <laughs> and be online and play? I mean, are you, are you excited about Zuckerberg's metaverse and virtual reality and all as a continuation of a positive trend or as the thing we need to, to watch out for? Well, I think I've got to the point now where I'm pretty pessimistic i'm afraid about mm. about where all of this is going and uh, thinking about your tv story and in the england in the 50s when i was growing up I think we only had one channel for a large part of that time. And quite often the TV would just go off. And then this sign would come on saying, do not adjust your set. There is a fault. And then... <laughs> I love we, that. I still remember it. And then R.D. Lang, the psychiatrist, years later, I think in the 60s, he adapted that to do not adjust your mind. There's a fault in reality. Mm. And now we've got to the point where I'm writing a novel again for the first time in many years. And it's set in 2016 and it's called The Fault in Reality because mm. I'm trying to understand what happened in 2016. I've got no answers whatsoever, but it just feels like we are now caught in a fault in reality. And I've really got no recommendations or suggestions or anything. I, I'm kind of a bit worn out by where we are now. But are we to blame for that? You and me? <laughs> Personally? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you know, no, but it's humans. blame our uh, uh, uncritical acceptance of technology into our lives for this, do you? I mean, and in that sense, I, I sometimes worry where my books in the early, although by the second or third book, I was already saying, watch out. You know, I, even in my first book, Siberia, at the end of the book, I said, there's a window of opportunity here for us human beings to embrace technology in a way that will augment what it means to be human. But, and I've said, but there's a new magazine called Wired that just 
is at a few issues now, and they're kind of reframing the net as a business thing. And if they win, rather than us Mondo 2000 crazy people, I'm not sure where this is going to go. And I guess that window of opportunity, it feels like by 2016 was when that window closed, and we really shifted into this other matrix. Yeah, so maybe we're not to blame. No, no, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we're we're to blame. I, re, I remember Siberia, by the way. Um, but it's just humans that this is what humans do, and and I, I honestly think we're just getting to the point where it's irretrievable. So now I I am thinking more and more about biophilia and and so on as being the world without us. You know, that, you know, mm. James Lovelock had always said, I know you did that fantastic interview with him a year or two ago. Yeah. And James, James Lovelock always said that if we became, I can't remember how he put it, but if we went too far, if we became too damaging humans, then Gaia would just shrug us off. And I think mm. we're in the process of being shrugged off. Yeah. And he does think that the technology will, will remain. I mean, he does. He does feel like there's a the new. I forgot what he called it. The um, where, where the Anthropocene, but then the, the Nova Scene. I think he called oh, it. Oh yes, that, yes. That technology is a new form of life. And then he was optimistic. He said, "You know, he. I think. I remember he said in that in that discussion. I think that the Nova Scene, the computers will keep us around because we can help them maintain the right temperature on the planet for them and nature." to keep going that humans but we just need to be kind of retrained <laughs> well that's very optimistic of him <laughs> yeah. i think yeah. they'll just keep six or seven of us around but i don't think he's gonna <laughs> they're gonna need but yeah but do you have do you do you have enough philia for the other biological forms to feel like like if humans were lost that there's still creatures that will a- appreciate reality that that will be you know what i mean sentient and conscious and appreciative or do you think appreciation is a very human concept i know it's what i worry but like consciousness you know i don't know i really i really don't know because i think that we've I don't know where humans came from i i don't know why we're so different from all the other species on mm. on the planet Maybe we just shouldn't never have been here. Maybe we were a mistake, you know, a few seeds dropped by a passing spaceship or something. Yeah, the so Nepalim or whoever, yeah. Whatever mythology. So I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm as keen as the next person to, you know, kind of connect with nature and connect my consciousness in a natural space and you know we have a, a a big ancient forest close to where I live and you know I like to go there and be at one with with the trees mm. and so on but I do feel like an outsider and I think when when um E.O. Wilson came up with this notion of biophilia I don't know if you remember but he was he was in a forest in Sumatra I think it was Suriname mm. and he was in the middle of the forest and he suddenly realized how completely inconsequential he was. And he looked around and he thought, all of the life here, the forest, the bugs, the animals, they're all carrying on without me. They don't need me. I'm completely inconsequential. And yet he felt connected to all of that, that that was the Mm. biophilia concept that he came up with. But also his own very small, his own unimportance, 
Mm. And that's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful for humans to almost go through a, a 12 steps program, you know, yes. where you really accept the higher power. It's just it, as nature, it's just, oh, you can let go then of all that ego stuff that you're trying to get done and go, oh, the squirrels really are just fine. <laughs> you know, I'm just along for the ride here. Yeah, yeah, we are just along for the ride, I think. So we better behave ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Do you worry for your babies? Your babies. I guess they're My walking babies. around by I've now. I've got yeah. grandchildren now. I've got oh, you do. teenage grandchildren. Do I worry for them? Sometimes I do. And then I stop myself because I think that, you know, that they are better equipped than I am having had a different, they've gone through a different process with, as they mm. grow up. And I, I don't think you can go there because you can't, run around worrying about that kind of thing. Do you worry about your daughter? I do. I do. You know, I worry about the world that she's in. And then and then I remember when she was about five years old and I decided, you know, ugh, I don't know if we're going to really be able to do anything about climate change. I remember thinking, well, even if everything ended today, I'm happy for her to have had these five years of experience and joy and play and crayons and, you know, trips to the zoo. The things that she did um, are, are more than worth the price of admission, you know. And once I was there, I was like, you know, if you've, as long as you've had some experiences of life, however, however much you've gotten, the rest is gravy. You know, you were here, you came, you saw, you know. So I, I kind of got to that place, which is a, a little bit sad, a little melancholy, but, but ultimately it's a space of appreciation for whatever, you know, whatever we've gotten to manifest. It's funny, I've always thought I need to feel hopeful in order to feel good. But I, I feel good without feeling hopeful. I feel good because here we are, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And don't you think that, you know, really, we've got to accept now that we're living in the age of uncertainty and we've got mm. to just adjust to that. Right. There's wobble. There's just wobble. We're... There is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, I guess a few years ago, I would have planned out my life in a certain way and I would have expected things to work out. And certainly I would never expected Brexit. I would never expect that feminism and, and everything else were going to be hacked to pieces and all the things that I fought for in the 60s and 70s were, would be slowly, you know, chopped to pieces and thrown away. I never expected that. I thought that life would just get better and better and politics would be fairer and fairer. And now look what's happened. So uncertainty. Right. Uncertainty. But that's the one thing we can be certain of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue, it's great. It's great to finally speak. Let's speak more. And we don't have to do it on on Team Human, but it's certainly great to have you on. And you're you're beyond Team Human. You're you're Team Nature, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great to speak with you. I always enjoy listening to your conversations with people. So I look mm. forward to listening to this one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Okay, thank you. 
and thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Sue Thomas, author of Technobiophilia, Nature and Cyberspace. You can find out more about her on her website at suethomasnet.wordpress.com or suethomas.medium.com or come to teamhuman.fm and you can find links to her work as well as the work of all of our guests and you'll have the opportunity to participate and support the team by clicking on support. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.